Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. Carol. Hi, Holly. You know, (laughs) (laughs) no, you go. No, you go. You you go. (laughs) You know, you know, I, I'm so, uh, remember when I was telling you about how my gargoyle got stolen off my porch last Halloween? What was his name again? His name was Vincent and he had a twin brother. So we only have Gus now. Yes. I remember you telling me you were very upset about that. That's right. He's the protector of my home. Yeah, of course. Um, but anyway, we talked all about um, like these elaborate gargoyles on the medieval cathedrals like Notre Dame. Yeah. And I was just thinking about um, all the gargoyle stories around and how fun it would be to do an episode on gargoyles. That's a great idea, Carol. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. The word gargoyle comes from the French word Gargouille, meaning throat, and many people think that only true gargoyles are the ones that have fountains of water coming out their throat. But the real meaning comes from the French legend of the gargoyle, which was a story that a terrible beast dragon creature terrorized the people of the town of Rouen, France. Supposedly, this all took place in 621 to 641 AD. Wow, that was a long time ago. (laughs) Not even in the teens. This beast was pretty awesome because not only could it breathe fire, but it could also vomit water from its mouth and causing floods, and it swallowed ships whole. Hmm. There were attempts to be made with the beast by offering it a victim to eat, but the people valued their prized virgins so much, so instead they offered up their criminals. (laughs) There are a couple versions of the story saying that St. Romanus helped turn the creature to stone using a crucifix and a bell, But upon transporting it back into town, everything but the head and the neck broke apart. And the most popular story states that he was helped to capture the creature with a condemned man who volunteered. Well, because he had nothing to lose. The monster was burned to death except for his neck and head, which wouldn't burn due to the fact that it can survive the fire of its own breath. Now, in both stories, the head was mounted to a newly built church in the town in an effort to ward off evil spirits and was used as protection. This turned into a tradition that every year on the day, the saint carried the head of the gargoyle, a prisoner was granted his freedom. Isn't that nice? That is very nice. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, gargoyles. There have been many sightings of these creatures and stories of gargoyles like... um, well, I, I even think that the Jersey Devil or even Mothman could qualify for that. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. Maybe. We don't see them as stone figures, but we've they kind of fit the monster flying around. The monster before the gargoyle. Yes, right. that makes right. a lot of sense. Sure. And the writer Stephen King calls them nightmares in the sky. I love mm, that. Yeah. In 2017, there was actually a sighting of a gargoyle-like creature who was witnessed by Alex Narsik and was interviewed by Cryptozoology News. Hmm. He said a dog-like creature with wings woke him up one morning in Santa Maria del Aguila. Look at my Spanish. Go, girl. Go. Yeah, I learned from the best. <laughs> yeah. Which is a town in Spain. 
Nice. He woke up to a shrieking woman, but when he looked out his window, he saw a bizarre winged beast perched on the building several feet away. The creature, he said, was thick with a short face, stretched head, and its body was bulky with like a pinkish color. Huh. I bet he was a high-class gargoyle. I bet like when he changes <laughs> to stone, he's that fancy Italian pink marble. Yeah, he probably is. He probably belonged to like a palace somewhere. Yes. Rose quartz for sure. Yes, definitely. <laughs> it didn't seem to have any legs, he said, and its wings were curved around six to eight feet in length with a very long, thin tail. Hmm. He said the movements of the creature were heavy and slow, and he couldn't believe it would be easy for it to fly. Well, but it's so heavy. It's made of that precious stone. It can't <laughs> fly very easily. I know. He said, but after staring at it for a few minutes, the gargoyle did slowly fly off into the sky. So it was able to fly. There are stories saying stone gargoyles can come to life and communicate with others, especially when wind or rain passes through their mouth. So you're more likely to see them on a stormy day. And others say that gargoyles can only come to life at night when alerted to danger. And they become a protector against dark forces until dawn when it has to turn again back into stone. Oh, now, cool. most people, when they hear of these stories, they think that people are confusing them with the flying fox animal and who resembles basically um, like a fox head with a bat-like body. You should look it up, Holly, but after I do my show. After, well far after. after. Yes, no research <laughs> while I'm talking. The problem with this explanation, though, is that many reports of these gargoyles say that they have these gigantic wings. And then, of course, the heaviness of the gargoyles, which flying foxes don't grow to that enormous size. Just like the Mothman, like you referenced earlier. That's right. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Ah, it's all coming full circle. Now, one story comes to mind that was told to me as a kid by an older girl that lived in our neighborhood. I was young. Um, I think I was around the age of eight or nine. Mm -hmm. And this kid, I, I'm going to call her Becky to keep her identity safe. Okay. But, um, she was around 13 or 14 at the time. And lots of us kids would gather in the summer evenings when the days were long and We'd play this game after dinner called Swing the Statue. Do you remember that? <laughs> I never remember that game. That. You've no, never played. Never oh, played you it. missed out. You missed out. It's, <laughs> play, it's great fun. I play kick the can, you know, oh. pure, pure games, not these sinister games no, that you're you talking were, about. You were playing spin the bottle at like 10. I know oh, you were. Totally. And lay as a feather, <laughs> stiff as a board. Bring it. Let's do this. So how the game goes is like this. When you, you basically let somebody take you by the arm and leg. And then they swing you in a circle a few times and then they let go of you. And then you so, throw up. <laughs> <laughs> and preferably, you know, this is done on soft grass. So where you land, you have to freeze like a statue in the pose that you were landing in. Then another person selected would go around and pretend that they were an art critic and select the best one to purchase, making funny comments, poking at you as they were choosing. So if a statue smiles or laughs or break their pose, the statue is out of the game. So one night after playing this, this girl, Becky, tells me of a strange thing that happened to her and another friend who were also playing the game with a different group of people on a previous evening, myself excluded. So she said they were playing around when they heard muffled laughing coming from somewhere else. And curious, she broke her frozen pose to check out the laughter 
and she said she saw a weird statue on the roof of the elementary school across from the park that they were playing in. And she described it as a monkey monster with wings, like almost like the, from the Wizard of Oz. But she said it was made of stone and it was sitting on the corner of the roof at the school. And she didn't think much of it at the moment, except that perhaps she just imagined laughing coming from that direction. Huh. And then she just thought that just seemed weird um, to be, you know, up there on the roof of the school. Did she see a uh, woman with green skin flying on a brown broomstick with a? <laughs> Did she hear music? Next to the flying monkey, exactly. See next to the flying monkey gargoyle on the rooftop. I don't know. I didn't ask. I'll her. get you my pretties. I know that'd be awesome. But she did notice, everyone noticed the sky was quickly getting dark, she said, and storm clouds were approaching. So they all ended the game and she offered to walk her friend back to her house. And um, she got an umbrella from her place, which was on the way just in case it rained. Mm -hmm. But on the way to her friends, she said a dark shadow moved directly over them. And she just thinking it was a storm cloud, opened up her umbrella, said goodbye to her friend at the corner of her street. And uh, immediately when that happened, just the clouds opened up. She was in a full rainstorm, wind at this point, and almost complete darkness. But out of the corner of her eye, she thought she saw a wing of some huge bird thing, but was in too much of a hurry to get back home to really stop and look. But here's the thing. The next morning, she came out of her house and noticed the same weird-looking statue that was sitting on the school. It was now sitting on the back porch of their neighbor's backyard, and it was facing her bedroom window. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, so when she was telling me this story, I was listening, and she's like, so look, you have to come over and see this right away to see if you remember it being there in the neighbor's yard because she swore it wasn't there before, but nobody seemed to believe her. So I walked over with her, and um, when I saw it, I, I kind of feel bad, but I told her it seemed familiar to me because I couldn't say for sure if it was there or not. Um, besides, the neighbor's house had this beautiful Japanese garden with water fountains, miniature bridges throughout the backyard, and all these really exotic flowers. So seeing the statue sitting there, to me, kind of made sense. It kind of went with the backyard of this right. neighbor. Okay. But she never mentioned it to me again, um, nor I didn't bring it up. But as far as I know, that statue thing was there for many, many years and nobody ever saw it move. And she had told me that day when we were walking over that it was her impression the statue was laughing at them because they were acting like statues in the game. And she felt it was protecting her from harm that night as she was making her way back home in the storm. And I told her, that was a nice thought, but inside my mind, Holly, I, I definitely was thinking, you know, this thing's going to eat her and it's just waiting for the right opportunity. Or she's crazy. Or she's just that shit crazy. That shit crazy. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's a great story though. Yeah. Very, very creepy, but kind of in a protective sort of way. Kind of like yeah. that. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Um, yeah. It's too bad there weren't more witnesses to this. Like it's too bad, like her friend. Like at, when she noticed the statue, she should have said something to other people. Right. You know, hey, look at that. Do you remember that? But I should, nobody ever saw it but her. I would like to say, uh, you could put this at the end of my story. Okay. That we're still looking for Vincent. So 
anybody uh, who sees a rogue gargoyle really <laughs> needs to, you know, bring that back. Somewhere we, we in a, Southeast Portland. We need a gargoyle alert. Like, you know how they have the yeah. Amber Alert? Send your I thought tips you... to firesidephantoms at gmail.com. Right. That's, That's right. right. Yeah. Um, didn't you say that you put um, missing flyers all over your neighborhood? No, I was going to. I was oh. going to. Well, there's a picture of him on our Instagram. So that if you want to go looking for Carol's Gargoyle, go to our Instagram account and you'll That's see. Right. It's one of the very first photos posted of, of Vincent. Well, that's Gus, but they're twins, but they're twins. Oh, they're twins. Okay, so the twin gargoyle is still at Carol's house, but we're looking for his twin who apparently flew away yeah. or someone took him. My story is not unique, but it is long and wordy, and you know how well I do with that, so... <laughs> Do you have alcohol? Help. No, not tonight. <laughs> not tonight. Um, I'm doing near-death experiences. Ooh. What is a near-death experience? Well, Carol, thank you for asking. Um, yes. What is it? <laughs> I don't ever want one. <laughs> right. So apparently when a person dies, some of them may have a near-death experience. What that means is that physically their body is dead. Their heart is no longer pumping. Their brain waves are flat. And at this point, they may experience floating up and out of their body and looking down upon themselves and others from a higher place. They sometimes will experience something called vertical perception where they can hear and see things around them that if truly unconscious, they wouldn't be able to see or hear. They may even see people or things in distant places from where their actual physical body is located. So, for example, they may see their families at home while they are flatlining at the hospital. Sometimes they may see a tunnel and a light and float towards it. They may meet angels or Jesus or even God himself or herself. <laughs> they, may, <laughs> they may encounter past loved ones and past pets and even see their entire life play out before them. Some describe being in a beautiful, otherworldly place, surrounded by love and peace. There is a strong feeling of connection, love, and oneness with everyone and everything around them. This experience can sometimes bring them to an encounter with an entity that tells them they have to make a choice to stay or to go back, or they are simply told it is not their time. The next thing the person knows is they are waking back up in their body. Even though many scientists have dismissed the NDE or the near-death experience to that of chemical reactions triggering in a dying brain, the experiencer feels that it is not a chemical reaction nor a hallucination. What they have gone through is more real than real life. This experience usually results in the experiencer completely changing their lives. It's quite common for experiencers to change careers or leave their spouses. They will develop a greater appreciation for life. Their self-esteem increases. They have greater compassion and unconditional love for others. They are less concerned about acquiring material wealth. They have a heightened sense of purpose and self-understanding. They have a stronger desire to learn. They have an elevated spirituality. They are more sensitive to what happens to their environment and their planet, and they have a feeling of being more intuitive with even psychic abilities developing. I've heard the psychic, uh, like a lot of times they yes. are able to be psychic because this brush of death has made that spirit world more tangible to them. Yes. They've been on both sides. 
it's like they've touched something magical and that magic has stayed with them. Right. And there yeah. is so many positive uh, things that you're saying come from this. I think yes. we should all just like die and come back again if possible. <laughs> right. Wouldn't that we be should great? just do this. Like, you know, oh, your life sucks. Just die and come back just again. Just die and come back. Just die and come back. You don't need a Tony Robbins motivation seminar. No. Nope. Just no, like you just... Turning, your, uh, turning your laptop off and turning it back on again. That's it's right. Like a it's just totally like a reboot. You're right, Josh. Yeah. It's perfect. In fact, these people even say that they have influence over electrical equipment. Maybe they can fix my Zoom screen. <laughs> Maybe they can. Um, at a near-death experiencer conference at a hotel where many experiencers had gathered, the hotel's entire computer system went down. The experiencers attributed oh, wow. the crash to their influence over electronics. Um, there can also be negative effects as well, such as having trouble with timekeeping and finances and psychosocial or psychospiritual problems. So here's the deal with near-death experiences. They're very hard for the scientific community to wrap their brains around, so to speak, because they're entirely difficult to really collect enough data to really study. So I went on to the internet and there's a really, really good article on theatlantic.com. This guy wrote a whole article about near-death experiences and I've linked to it on our website. He basically starts talking about the way scientists are trying to study near-death experiences. And one of the things that he says, he's following something called the AWARE study, and the AWARE study is trying to get as much research done about this as they can, because they're trying to find out what's really going on. Um, he says the results of the AWARE study immediately highlight the key problem with this kind of research. It's very hard to get enough data. For over four years, the study recorded a total of 2,060 cardiac arrests. There was more than that, but the researchers weren't able to record all of them. Oh. Uh, of those patients, only 330 survived. 140 of whom were judged well enough to be interviewed and agreed to participate. Of those 140, 101 made it past the screening interview. The others were unable to continue, predominantly due to fatigue. Of those 101, nine remembered experiences that counted as an NDE on the Grayson scale. Now, the Grayson scale is what they used to determine if a person has indeed experienced an NDE. There were two that remembered an out-of-body experience. Of those two, one became too ill to interview further, which left just one person that they could talk to about his experience. Oh, no. So, so out of all of those people, there out was of only all of those one people, there was one person, person that would qualify for them in their research. So this doesn't happen very often. It's very, very rare. Very hard to study because they have such a small amount of people that will qualify for the research. So that makes it really difficult for scientists to really, I think, give it a lot of credibility because there's just not enough data. And it's so hard to collect the data that to most scientists, it's just ridiculous why even bother. So, yeah. yeah. And one of the biggest things that they mention is that uh, vertical uh, perception, because that could be the biggest um, way of showing that the consciousness of um, the spirit exists outside of a body because if you can float around and leave the physical location of where your actual body is right and able to report about things that have happened that there's no way for you to know that would be the biggest way to prove 
that you've actually left your body. And right. in fact, one of the things they're doing in this research is that they're putting like images and things on top shelves. So if you're in an emergency room having a cardiac arrest and you leave your body and you're floating above everybody, you would be able to see and describe these photos. But because they've had such a limited number of people that they can pull data from, they haven't had that confirmed yet, but they've had other people who've had experiences like one woman, she floated out of her body and out of the hospital room and up a couple stories and found a shoe on the ledge. And when she came back, she described to the nurse the shoe and the woman, the nurse went upstairs and found the shoe and there it was. No way. So that is so That's awesome. one of the ways they want to study to see is this actually happening or is it just the brain shutting down, having a bunch of chemicals trigger through it because it's dying. Like that's what they're trying to find out. So that vertical perception could be the way, the key to seeing if it's really inside your body or outside your body. Right. So I think that's kind of interesting. But anyway, so here are some stories that I thought were pretty cool. Um, this first one comes from a book called Visits from Heaven by a woman named Josie Varga. And she collected a whole bunch of near-death experience stories. This one's one of my favorites. There was a car accident and the woman that was in the car accident um, she was badly injured and she floated up out of her body and above the traffic and she had created a big traffic jam from this accident and she could hear all the thoughts of all the people in the cars behind her. And she said in here that she noticed some twinkling lights coming towards her. They entered her body and she felt nourished and loved. She wondered where the lights had come from. Suddenly she transported to the fifth car that was caught up in the jam. She saw and heard the driver who was inside the vehicle praying for whoever was in the accident. Before returning to her body, she got the license plate of the car. Oh, wow. Following her recovery, she managed to track down the person's address and personally delivered a dozen red roses. She explained that she was the person the driver had been praying for. <gasps> wow, good memory, too. I can't remember I know, right? anything. Would you have remembered, especially no. as a disembodied spirit, you would Never. remember somebody's license plate? I would never. I wonder if she had her cell phone with her. Like <laughs> just in a took a picture. <laughs> That's probably what happened. You're right. Then there's another book called Beyond the Light by an author named P.M.H. Atwater. And I picked this story particularly because it's got uh, pets in it. And we Yay. all want to see our deceased pets when we die. Definitely. Right? So this one feels really good to me, too. This guy collapsed after having a violent allergic reaction to pine nuts and he was rushed to the hospital. So here's what he remembers happening to him. He says, I hear a bark and racing toward me is a dog I once had, a black poodle named Pepe. When I see him, I feel an emotional floodgate open. Tears fill my eyes. He jumps into my arms, licking my face. As I hold him, he is real, more real than I had ever experienced him. I can smell him, feel him hear his breathing, and sense his great joy at being with me again. I put my dog on the ground and step forward to embrace my stepfather when a very strong voice is heard in my consciousness. Not yet, it says. I scream out, why? Then this inner voice says, what have you learned and whom have you helped? I am dumbfounded. The voice seems to be from without as well as within. Everything stops for a moment. I have to think of what was asked of me. I cannot answer what I have learned, but I can answer whom I have helped. I felt the presence of my dog around me as I pondered these two questions. Then I hear barking and other dogs appear, dogs I once had. As I stand there for what seems to be an eternity, I want to embrace and be absorbed and merge. I want to stay. 
The sensation of not wanting to come back is overwhelming. But ultimately, he does go back. He goes back to the same tunnel he came to that place in. And once he does regain his consciousness, he is told by a doctor that he had been dead for over 10 minutes. Oh, that's, that's, isn't that like, don't you get brain damage if it's past like four minutes? You would think so. I don't even know. Isn't that oh, crazy? That's crazy. But another interesting thing about this is that apparently near-death experiences can heal you. So perhaps even though this guy came back after being dead for 10 minutes, he was healed or protected from bodily destruction during that time. Because my next story is about something similar to that. Um, this is actually from the Today Show. This woman named Anita Murjani. She, <gasps> I have love you heard the story? I love her. Oh. She has the best story. I saw her speak live. At, okay, um, so you know the story Dr. then. No, no, no. Uh, what's his name? Dr. Phil. No, not Dr. Dr. Phil. Dr. Oz. Dr. Uh, oh my gosh, the guy that just died last year. Dr. Wayne Dyer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to a conference in California. Oh, yeah, or I not that. California. Oh, God, I don't even know my past <laughs> anymore. Uh, the conference I went to in Austin, Texas. Yes, I remember I when you went to that. Speak. Oh, cool. I remember when you went to that. So, yes, yeah, so she was interviewed by Maria Shriver on the Today Show. And she, and I, I know you know the story, but I'll tell it to you for our listeners. So, she was diagnosed with lymphoma and she was so sick she fell into a coma. Um, she ended up having a near-death experience where she encountered her late father. She said, and again, I'm going to take this directly from their website. I felt as though I was above my body. She said, it was like I had a 360 degree peripheral vision of the whole area around, but not just in the room where my body was, but beyond the room. She wrote a book called dying to be me. And she talks about this experience in that book. Her late father told her, um, I've gone as far as I can, and if I go any further, I won't be able to turn back, she said. But I felt like I didn't want to turn back because it was so beautiful. It was just incredible because for the first time, all the pain had gone. All the discomfort had gone. All the fear was gone. I just felt so incredible, and I felt as though I was enveloped in this feeling of just love, unconditional love. But she said she had this incredible clarity and she said everything made sense to her. So she did return to her body because she knew it would heal very, very quickly. And it did. Within four days, her tumors had shrunk by 70% and the doctors were shocked. And she just kept telling everybody, I know I'm going to be okay. It's not my time to die. That's amazing. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, and she's totally beaten the disease. Yeah. It's totally gone. Because she knew she was supposed to stay and do more of god's work apparently i love um, it has anybody um experienced a scary yes they have oh it's uh, coming situation. Carol. <laughs> oh no, oh, <laughs> yes, no. there's some dark shit out there um yeah, so, it wouldn't be you without some dark shit that's right well yeah i've got i've got to take it down to that level don't i that's right now we're gonna take a hard left turn <laughs> <laughs> And we're so going to talk out, about... <laughs> get out your teddy bears, everyone. Get, get ready to be scared because this one's very fucked up. And oh, so no. here's what can happen if you don't mind your P's and Q's, apparently, because um, you can have a very different experience when you nearly die, as this next story will tell us. Oh. Again, taken directly. I didn't want to rewrite any of these stories because it's so much better being told than the way that they were written that I just want to give the to credit where it's due. 
keep the integrity of the story. I didn't want to like yeah. mess it up. This is from mysteriousuniverse.org. It's an article called To Hell and Back by Brent Swanser. And it tells us the story of a guy named Matthew Botsford, who in 1992 was shot as he exited a bar in Atlanta, Georgia, by two disgruntled men who had been kicked out of the establishment earlier in the night. They were just taking their frustrations out by shooting guns at the building. He got shot in the head. He was grievously wounded and was bleeding profusely. So he was rushed to the hospital and the doctors decided that he had, um, they had to reduce the swelling in his brain. So they put him in a coma, a medically induced coma for 27 days. So after he gets into this coma, he said, this is what he experienced. At first, there was pure nothingness, an unbearable void of perfect blackness, which he described as being like thick black ink had been poured over my eyes. This chasm of total darkness began to slowly be illuminated by a blooming light that appeared to come from some glowing abyss below me that was belching out waves of of incredible heat and noxious smoke. It was then that Botsford noticed that his hands and feet were shackled with chains and that he was suspended in midair amongst the heat and smoke by some unseen force. It was also then when he began to notice a chorus of anguished screams and unearthly shrieks pervading the air around him oh. as if from an endless sea of tortured, oppressed people. Well, that sounds like hell to me. Sounds like being at an Ikea on Saturday. Oh. Okay, so... <laughs> Looking down into the pit below in a panic, he claimed that he could see strange beasts and less defined things with glowing demonic eyes wandering about, snapping and snarling. Ew. Yeah, it gets worse. Okay. <laughs> that was um, the dog park that had all the Dobermans. Yeah. <laughs> The smoke that was coming from below was also notable for the fact that each plume had framed within it a soul that writhed in torment. Throughout all of this, Botsford described the whole sinister scene as being permeated by a crushing sense of utter loneliness and despair that pierced him to the core. In addition to all of this, Botsford said that the infernal, relentless heat was starting to char and sear his flesh, and as soon as he began to believe that he would be burned down to the bone and to ash and nothingness, all of it grew back to begin the agonizing process again. No. Mm-hmm. So it just, he's continuously being burnt to death over burnt and over Burnt to death again. over and over again, and then his flesh will come back so it can be burned again. And even worse was the arrival of hideous horned creatures with glowing okay. oval eyes and sharp what? fangs. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, it just what keeps did going. This, what did this guy do in his life? Was he like know. a serial killer that we don't I know don't about? I don't know. I don't know. It says, the arrival of these hideous horned creatures with glowing oval eyes and sharp veins, which proceeded to rip and gnaw the cooking flesh from his body and devour it. (laughs) That poor guy. (laughs) After which the flesh would grow back. As he hung there (laughs) roasting above this red pulsing chasm of snapping beasts and the shiny eyes closed in again and again to feed. Bosford was allegedly grabbed by a giant hand and pulled away, accompanied by a booming voice that declared, it's not your time. When he snapped out of his coma, I would re- say, I would say, where were you <laughs> five hours ago? Oh my God. When he snapped out of his coma, he realized that he was no longer in that terrible bleak place, but rather in a hospital room with a bad headache and a paralyzed left side. The whole experience was so unsettling that Bosford would go on to write a whole book about it entitled A Day in Hell, 
death to life to hope. Okay. So you said he was in a coma though. He wasn't actually dead, right? Right. But so it could have been some bad drugs. They gave it could him. have been some bad drugs or a bad dream, but he, it could also be that maybe he did die and go someplace. I don't know. But here I have one more story and then I'm going to be all done with the subject. But it's, um, it's interesting because my next story is going to kind of back up the story I just told you. Okay. okay. So there's okay. A, a video on YouTube and it's by, um, it's about a story of a doctor named Dr. Maurice Rawlings. He said he was treating a cardiac arrest patient in 1977. He said the patient passed out while he and the nurses were trying to re revive him. The nurses would perform CPR while the doctor would massage his heart. Whenever they would bring him back, the doctor would have to stop massaging his heart and then reach for his tools to try to get a pacemaker into his heart. And when he would do this, the patient would pass out again. Even though this was a stressful situation, it was even more stressful because whenever the patient would regain consciousness, he would start screaming, I'm in hell, and beg the doctor to save him. <laughs> Can you imagine that doctor? Like, Could you oh my imagine? God, if I don't save him, he yes. is going to hell? Yes. So the doctor you, said oh. the patient looked petrified, yes. and every time he passed out, he was going back to hell. Oh, every no. time. Oh, every time no. he lost consciousness, he was going back down into the pit. So finally, the patient, in a moment of delirious consciousness, asked the doctor to pray for him. The doctor was a total scientist and an atheist. But he remembered a prayer from Sunday school, and he said it to the man, telling him to repeat it. It was a prayer asking Jesus to save him. As soon as the man repeated the prayer, his heart stabilized, and he pulled through. A few days later, the doctor wow. asked the patient what he remembered of hell. And the patient remembered nothing of hell, but did remember how the doctor and the nurses fought to save him as soon as he had prayed to Jesus. He remembered seeing a beautiful light, a beautiful space with lush vegetation, and seeing his deceased relatives. It changed the doctor's opinion of an afterlife forever. I don't know about you, Carol, but after hearing those last two stories, I'm thinking about going back to church. <laughs> Hi, I'm Carol. And I'm Holly. And, and we are, are the hosts of Fireside, Fireside Phantoms. Phantoms. Oh, wait, <laughs> we we're not together that. at all. No. no. <laughs> and, and we are the hosts host of Fireside, Fireside Phantoms. Phantoms. <laughs> Hi, I'm Carol. And I'm Holly. And we are the hosts of Fireside, Fireside Phantoms. Phantoms. You got to pause. <laughs> you know what it is? We have a delay. Pause. And we are the hosts of Fireside, Fireside Phantoms. Phantoms. Well, you slowed way down there, Holly. I, well, I <laughs> hold on. Siri's trying to. <laughs> oh, is Siri, Siri's Siri on my iPad just said just said, "Can I help you find information on Jesus?" <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. Well, thanks, Siri. <laughs> As the flames die down, do remain undaunted. Though all hitchhikers are ghosts, and all dolls are definitely haunted. guys be sure to follow us on instagram our handle is at fireside phantoms if you have a spooky story you would like to share with us send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com and you may hear it on a future episode